On today's State Ain't So Sports, we have an interview with my grandfather, Bill Murray. He started off his career working with the New York Mets and then transitioned into working in the Major League Baseball Commissioner's Office um, until the year 2000. Uh, we, you hear a lot of good baseball stories from his from his uh, career. And uh, with that being said, let's just get right into it. We are now welcomed by my grandfather. Um, I call him Bubba. His name is Bill Murray. Um, Bubba, how are you? How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Charlie. Glad to be with you. Glad to be with you too. So, um, for those who don't know, obviously, so my grandpa he worked in Major League Baseball for a very long time. That was like his professional career before he retired. Just work working uh, in with both the the Mets and um, working in the commissioner's office. So my first question for you is like, how did you start like with the Mets? Like like because back then like this is like you started with them like when they were first founded, right? Like in '62, right? Yeah, it was early on. Actually, it was uh, it was before '62. Uh, I was working for a uh, public accounting firm, firm of CPAs, and uh, one of the owners of the Mets was one of our clients. And uh, he was the one that sort of appointed the accountants and orders, and he gave the job to us. But uh, during the course of negotiations with the city over a lease for Shea Stadium, uh, the city required that they have a certified financial statement uh, testing to how much the net worth of the shareholders was. So um, I was uh, sent up there. It was like a real quick audit. They hadn't really started. It was uh, an easy job. And uh, we wrote the statement, and it ended up being published uh, in the back end of the lease. The lease is probably, I, I'd imagine it's about 150, 175 pages. But in the back end, that was uh, appended in there as a uh part of the uh the report was in there yeah so um that's how i started uh, i didn't really work full-time there until uh uh they there was a change in the financial situation in the officer there and and uh uh that came about in uh 1966 july 66 yeah so um like one of one of the stories that you told me about that a lot of people don't necessarily know about in the baseball like world and like Mets fans is obviously everybody knows like back, like when the Mets first started, they were like the worst team in baseball. People talk about the 1962 Mets is like possibly the worst team ever assembled. I saw somebody say that. Um, so I remember you telling me about something interest, like something pretty funny that they did back like before 1969, that crazy year, the miracle Mets and everything like where they kind of just thought they would never win anything. Like, can you tell me about, like, what, what they did back then? Well, um, they, some dark days there, boy, let me tell you, in the early years. Um, and uh, they, the, uh, the owners of the club were really uh, – they were, like, really true sports fans. The majority owner of the club was uh, Mrs. Joan Payson. She was a member of the uh, Whitney family. And it was her and it was uh, Donald Grant, who was the chairman of the board, and uh, Herbie Walker, who was the uh, uh, the treasurer at the time. And then uh, they uh, they were always really good to the employees. 
So at Christmas time, they'd have this great big party up in the Diamond Club at Shea Stadium. And they'd give out uh, some very nice gift for that particular year. And the first year I started, um, they gave out a ring. And it was, uh, it was sort of something was very unusual for a sports team to give out a ring. So uh, unless they had won a championship. So it came about when Mrs. Payson came in one day and checked with one of the business manager and said, hey, what are we doing for the Christmas party? What sort of a gift are we going to get? So they had this um, uh, list of gifts there. And she says, geez, you know, he says, I think we ought to get one with the Met logo and make a ring out of it. And uh, it would be great and look pretty. I think there'd be a couple of chips in it and what have you. So uh, the fellow who was in charge there, Jim Thompson at the time, says, gee, that's something that they, that they really don't do. You know, and George Weiss was still a general manager. And he says, you better talk to George about that. So she went in to see George. She says, George, I think we ought to make rings up and give them out for Christmas. It ended up that uh, George says he didn't think it was a great idea either. Uh, but she says, he says, you got to win in order to get one of these things. And finally, they're talking a little bit. And she says, oh, George, I'm going to, I think the ring is the right thing to do. He says, the way this club plays, he says, we're never going to win anything. So why don't we get one now? We'll be dead before we get a ring that we win. <laughs> so they did the rings and they gave them out. And we always referred to them as our last place ring instead of a championship ring. Yeah, super, super ironic considering that four yeah, five, good looking rings too. Yeah, I mean, great looking rings. And then ironically, four or five years down the road, they're playing for a World Series, ending up winning the World Series. People, everybody refers to that team in 1969 uh, as, as the Miracle Mets. And you, yep. were, you were working with the team at that time. Um, what was that? What was that journey like? Like, what what was that like being being a, with the the team at the time? Like, working for the club at the time. Like, what would like? Because obviously, I'll never be able to understand like what it was like. But well, it, it was. How was it? How was it? <laughs> like, it was. It was a real fun thing to sort of look back and think about. Uh, we ended up. Uh, uh, they were playing fairly well that year. Gil Hodges was the manager. He'd come in to take the club over, uh, and uh, the club really turned around. We got some real good young pitching arms came up. Seaver came up, and Gentry, and Kuzman, and uh, people like that, that that were up there. Uh, some younger players came along. Uh, you had uh, Cleon Jones blossom. They got Tommy Agee. Uh, you know, there was a lot of good players there, and then. In the middle of the season, on June 15th, uh, Johnny Murphy was the general manager. And uh, Johnny was able to make a deal uh, with uh, the Montreal Club. And he gave them four young prospects, pretty good players too. And um, he was able to get Don Clendenin, who was a big power hitting first baseman. And he was sort of like the last piece that they needed to really become legit so uh they made the deal and uh, uh don came down did a heck of a job playing first base uh, the other people on the club all started to click they had uh 
you know, Wayne Garrett there, and they had uh, a number of other young players that had come in and uh, really started to develop and, and play together. But it was funny, you could see sort of, uh, uh, sort of an undertone or a wave coming along uh, as the season progressed. They stayed up there, they were going on there. And then in September, uh, they really kicked into overdrive and they came on and, and won. And it shocked the heck out of everybody. I mean, people used to say, There'll be a man on the moon before the Mets win the World Series. To be fair. Sure to enough, fair. in late August of that year, there was a man on the moon. But to be fair, they were right. There was a man on the moon before the Mets won the World Series. That's right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. But also, um, I do remember, like, when the Cubs uh, won the World Series a few years back, they would always bring up, like, some some major like moments where like their seasons went awry when they were having really successful years and i remember them seeing like seeing like a black cat at shea or wrigley or something like yeah it was you know it was sort of crazy things like that you say uh you know this thing might be destiny you know you see uh, the, the black cat comes out and that sort of type thing uh sports writers were looking for anything to write about that would uh, uh hype the team and uh it just went that way. Everything started to fall in place. The players became more confident. Uh, Hodges was a great, great leader. And uh, he really pulled them together and showed them what to do. Yeah. Um, and um, like, so then four years down the road, the Mets are, the Mets ended up being one game away from, from winning a World Series against uh, a team that actually won three straight championships in the athletics back in uh, 73. Like, and was that, was, a, was that any surprise? Like, to see yeah, 73 was, was really sort of another odd year there in that uh, the standings in the National League uh, East was really uh, tight. Nobody was really pulling away. There was a people, group of people uh, gathered there. I think people thought that the Cubs were going to make it. Uh, but somehow the Mets uh, squeaked through and then went on into uh, the playoffs with uh, Cincinnati. There was a big ruckus they had between uh, Pete Rose and Buddy Harrelson uh, at second base. Uh, and they ended up winning the, uh, the playoffs and going uh, into the series. Uh, the series was, uh, uh, they opened in Oakland and then came to New York. So at the end of the fifth game uh, in New York, uh, the Mets were up one game. And they were ahead three to two, with two to, if you needed them, out in Oakland. And uh, it turned out Oakland turned it around there, and, and uh, they pulled it out and won yeah. in the seventh game. I mean, that, that Oakland team, that was like one of the – Oh, Joe Rudy and all those guys. You know, and they had some great players, great players. Reggie Jackson. Jackson. Uh, you know, all those great players that they had there then. That was a long ride home. Yeah. yeah you get that close and then uh, you see things uh, miss. Yeah. Um, and then um, a few years down the road, um, actually, before, before, we get to, before we get to what I was saying, um, talk about, um, like, you were there when Shea, for, like, when Shea first opened, kind of, and, like, throughout your whole – career the Mets were playing in Shea and um 
now now they're that now they're in City Field, which is yeah, in my mm-hmm. opinion, it's a great ballpark. Well, like you don't you always would tell me about like how shit like like the the problems with Shea. Like would you like would you want to like well go, uh, you you got to remember when Shea was built. Uh, the Mets first played the, the first two seasons in '62 and '63 in the Polo Grounds, mm-hmm. and during that time, uh, they were building uh, Shea Stadium, and across the street they were building out uh, the World's Fair. Huge, huge jobs in both sides, and uh, people—they they didn't have workers, enough workers. Uh, to do both jobs really with uh, to, with justice on it, uh, there were some things that uh, weren't done as well as they could have been. You know, like drains didn't end up in the right spot to take water off, and and the stands and different things like that. There were a lot of things that went wrong with that there, but they did end up uh, getting it open. Uh, I was surprised that they were able to get the the whole thing done. Uh, Met season was a little bit earlier than what the World's Fair was, so uh, they did manage to uh, to push on that and get it done. And then the World's Fair opened up, so uh, uh, it was never uh, you know an A plus uh, stadium, so to speak, you know. But uh, it did well for them, and uh, they always managed to come through. Yeah. Um... And you were also I like I also know you were with the Mets at the time when the um the Paysons sold the team to um uh Doubleday and uh Fred Wilpon. Yes, that- yeah. They uh, uh Mrs. Payson had died and her husband uh, and his wife uh, after she had died uh, he ended up marrying remarrying again and uh, ended up uh uh sort of not having that as the top of their list of things that they were into. So uh, the other members of the family, I think, were really uh, wanting to stay on. Uh, The daughter, Lorinda, was a great lady and still is. And uh, uh, she loved the club. Uh, Johnny, her brother, they all loved the the club and wanted to keep it in the family if they could. But uh, they decided to let it go when uh, uh, their father, didn't show any interest on it. Yeah. Um, so uh, Nelson Doubleday and uh, uh, Fred, Wilpon. Fred Wilpon ended up uh, buying the team. And uh, eventually, uh, after a number of years, uh, Fred ended up buying out uh, Nelson's interest in the club. Yeah. Um, and then after, I know like, Shortly after the um that that sale, you you moved like you you uh you left the Mets and you you moved into um the commissioner the commissioner's office. Yeah, I uh, I, I knew uh, uh, Bowie Kuhn, who was then the commissioner for a number of years. Uh, in fact, he had asked me to serve on many uh, baseball committees and different studies that they made and, and that type of thing. Uh, industry-wide type thing. So um, I knew him, and uh, when uh, the club was sold, he approached me and asked me if I would uh, take over the uh, baseball operations uh, at the commissioner's office. And uh, it was a big change. Uh, I had been working on the financial side, but I did get some um, 
uh, background and information, read up on the rules and this, the other thing that it needed to know. And uh, uh, I ended up, I took it. It was a big switch, big switch going from the business side sort of to the baseball side. Still connected with uh, a number of projects that when came up later on, stalling a pension plan for all of the major league clubs and uh, things like that. And we started a, a captive insurance company uh, for the clubs to write uh, workers' comp and liability insurance and a number of different financial projects that popped up as well as the baseball. Yeah, I mean, right. Uh, so you talk about like doing things for the baseball side. And right now we're actually recording this um, during one of the days of the NFL draft. And obviously I know we, you, you took me to one of the MLB drafts a few years back and you used to actually work them and you actually used to actually like announce the picks for. Yeah, well, uh, back those days, uh, it was, uh, they didn't have the technology that they have now, but they started to use uh, conference calls uh, for the drafts. Uh, originally, they would uh, have all of the clubs that go into some big hotel ballroom and set mm -hmm. up tables for each team, and the teams would come in with uh, uh, trunks full of uh, data and and reports and what have you, that type of thing, scouting reports. And they would uh, make their, uh, uh, they would make their, their picks based on uh, what was going on during the draft. Uh, but uh, we ended up uh, going to the conference call thing. People were saying, you know, why do we have to get a couple of hundred people in a, in a room? Why don't they just uh, stay back in their offices and we'll do it on the phone? So that's the way that thing uh, started. and. Uh, uh, gosh, I don't know how many drafts I was involved with. Quite a few. Uh, there were the regular player drafts in June and in January when, they, when we first started there. There was a January draft as well as a June draft. Uh, each year, for a while, we had those re-entry drafts when players could elect free agency. Mm -hmm. And then uh, they had to come back in and they were picked by a certain number of clubs who could negotiate with them. Uh, they had all sorts of drafts that went around. We had one for the Dominicans one day because of the, some Ill illegal signings and everybody sort of got set free and we started over and had one draft uh, for them only. Uh, so there were any number of drafts that I was involved with. There was quite a few though. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you've ever seen the, the ESPN 30 for 30 on Bo Jackson, uh, this is, the, um, you see the clip of Bo Jackson being drafted by the Royals. This is, this is the man making, making the, the announcement I actually show you. And that I remember telling you about that when I, when I saw that, that's kind of interesting. Um, and when you're in the, you're in the uh, MLB office, like what were some like interesting, like moments that you saw like what were some like pretty memorable moments that you, that you remember like during during like some world series or whatnot when you were back in uh in the commissioner's office oh yeah well uh 86 i remember that boston and the mets um and um when i was at the world series games um but we were supervising the, the umpires as well as making sure everything else was going around. We'd have to have contact with them, uh, whether it was weather problems or something else that might come up. So um, I would sort of hang out in one dugout or the other. Uh, and 
we were at Shea Stadium, and it was the uh, uh, the game in which the ball went through. Yeah, game, game uh, Billy six. Buckner's legs. Yeah, it was a shame. He's a great, great ball player, and then just that one thing hangs on his uh, his reputation there a bit. But uh, I was standing down in the corner uh, and watching the game there, and I saw the ball go through his legs and. Uh, Tom Seaver was then with Boston. Uh, so Tom was uh, down on the bench, a few people down past where I was. And I just looked over and I could see the air in the dugout just disappeared. Sucked all the wind out of the, out of the Boston team and they were just standing there just saying, wow, how did that ever happen? What's, you know, it was like fate for bad fate for them you know curse of the bambino still alive back then yeah yeah so uh that was one that was there i, I was there in uh oh 88 uh when kurt gibson hit the home run in la uh i just couldn't imagine how he would have made first base unless he hit the ball out of the ballpark i mean he was so banged up his legs were Real bad, uh, but he, he stroked it and he was able to pull it out of there and he hobbled around the bases and that was it. He had won it, yep. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the like iconic baseball yeah. images. And yeah. Do you, like, which, which dugout were you in during that uh, one? Because you mentioned you're in the- I was actually, it was in the Los Angeles dugout in, in uh, Dodger Stadium. And uh, when I went down there to sit in the corner, Tommy Lasorda grabbed me and he says, where are you going? So I said, I'm going down the corner to sit there. He says, no, you're not. He says, come with me. So he puts me in this old wooden chair that he had right by the ramp that went up to the dugout. And he says, you sit here. I want to keep an eye on you. <laughs> so I was there. And then uh, uh, Gibson, I remember, during the early part of the game, uh, tells the bat boy, he says, tell Tommy if he needs me. I'm up hitting in the, in the cage. So uh, it was a very dramatic uh, moment in the ninth inning when uh, Tommy needed him to pinch hit and he came hobbling down the, down the ramp and limped up and boom, he popped it. That was it. It was a great, great experience to watch that. I mean, that's, that's great. Like that, like I just mentioned before, is one of the iconic moments in baseball history. And it's just like crazy to know like you were in the dugout for, for that. So well, I guess I guess you're forced to, to stay in the dugout by, by Lasorda, but um yeah, I mean after after that World Series obviously maybe this is a few years down the road, I'm not hundred percent sure, but um the MLB uh, commissioner changed from uh Faye Vincent to, to Bug Seelig to Bug yeah. and uh I know Seelig uh was at the time the, the owner of the of uh, Milwaukee, the Brewers, and uh, so like what um what was it like for, for you working in like the commissioner's office when there is a change like that? And I, that specific change in commissioners was such an important change because of, because Bud Seelig, like whether or not you were a fan of like what he, what he did as commissioner, a lot of, a lot of things, a lot of things happened with, with him as commissioner. Yeah. Well, uh, Bud had been around for a long, long time. He was involved in getting a team back into Milwaukee. Uh, after they uh, originally had uh, lost the team out there. Mm -hmm. uh, 
so he's he'd been around for a long time and he has also been involved very heavily in uh, the player relations negotiations with the union uh, over the different bargaining agreements that were there. Uh, each of the commissioners, you could look and you could, you could tell there were different uh, things that they had to deal with. Um, I worked for five of them. Uh, Bowie had uh, expansion, exploding TV markets. Uh, the, we had the, the players' um, union he had to deal with there. Uh, it was a whole slew of things. It was a lot of turmoil for, for them. And um, it was something that a lot of the owners couldn't understand. I don't think could really grasp. Uh, they had always had complete control over players before. Now uh, that was disappearing with the, with, with the union benefits that they were gaining through uh, negotiation. So um, I think that uh, they all had tough times. He had that. Uh, Peter Ubroth came in uh, behind Bowie, tried to uh, help them get organized and have a better relationship with the players and the umpires. Peter's first day, the umpires went on strike for the playoffs out in San Diego. So that got straightened out. That was also the year. How'd you like to have that? And then... Chicago Cubs were in the middle of the mix. So there was a possibility that... The Cubs go uh, to the World Series. The first yeah, time. so and, and they end up winning the first two games at home. So we end up uh, going out to San Diego and thinking that the Cubs are going to win. And the big problem was we couldn't get umpires. give the television uh, stations the product that we had contracted for if they didn't have lights. So I was... Out there oh, cool. on trying to figure out how we get temporary oh, yeah. lighting set up in, in uh, uh, over in Wrigley Field. Yeah, I completely forgot about that. Like I, I remember like seeing like Wrigley, which opened in um, 1914, I believe. Like they didn't have lights until like the late 80s. Yeah, they had actually they had plans to put lights in in Wrigley uh, in the early 40s. In fact, in the office, they had the old blueprint drawings for, the, for this uh, lighting system that they were going to put in there. Never got around to it? Uh, no. The funny thing happened on the way to a ball game one day uh, that World War II broke out. Oh. So they had ordered the steel and everything to put the lights in. And they ended up turning it over to the government so that they could build whatever they needed with whatever they had that was mm-hmm. already put together. Yeah. So strange things happen, you know, all over the place like that. Strange things are happening right now. Like, yeah. But, uh, yeah, Peter had that. Then, uh, after Peter left, Bart Giamatti came in. Poor Bart got, uh, died of a heart attack, uh, uh, not too long after he had rendered the Pete Rose decision. Uh, then after, uh, after that, uh, Faye came in and then, uh, Bud Steele. So I was around for five different commissioners. It's a lot of commissioners. I mean, in what, 10 years? Steele started early nineties. So. Yeah, he started, it was about 94. And a lot of this stuff, um, was, I think the inability of the management people to grasp the fact that, um, uh, 
they're involved in labor negotiations. These people have right to representation and somebody to you know to bargain on their behalf. Uh, they had been uh, there was a, a charge of of uh, you know collusion by the clubs over salary fixing and that type of thing. And there was some big money that was involved in those days for that, that amount of money was big money. And that uh, ended up um, causing a lot of rifts. There was competition then, uh, people were going back and forth and people still had remnants of the thought that they could control players even though they opted for free agency. So if you had somebody who had griped about uh, you know, one club bidding on a player that formerly went for another. You had that. It was, uh, you had that type of thing. There was a lot of bad feelings amongst uh, teams at that time that they were taking their players away when, in fact, the players were legitimately free agents and, and should have been able to do what they wanted to do. Yeah. So um, you're talking about all this like turmoil between the players' union and the owners. And this all led to probably, I'm going to, assume was like the biggest and most important thing that happened in baseball at that point in your career during like your, your your entire career. And this is still one of, if not like the biggest, like this is one of the biggest moments in baseball history, which was when uh strike happened in 1994. And then they ended up uh, canceling that year's world series and they um like, and then they didn't. And then the next season, uh, the '95 season, started uh, late, and they like had a they had a shortened season. So, um, what was what was it like working in the MLB office as the commissioner's office? Because obviously, the commissioner's the commissioner's job is to to work for the owners, um, and because like the owners are are the ones that like hire the commissioner, going on who the commissioner is. So, what was it like being in the office? like being in the commissioner's office during like one of the darkest like times in baseball history? Um, it, it was sort of a, a sad thing to see uh, the rupture that had been there uh, between the, the two sides. Uh, there's a lot of bad feelings on both sides. And um, the owners never really, I think, uh, understood where the players were from. This was not just a, a matter of, uh, of dollars and cents. The, 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 the players are really, really competitive guys. And uh, if you want to step up and mix it with them, you got to be ready to take a shot uh, because they're, they're going to go in and dig and, and do the best they can. It's like a guy coming in hard with a slide or you know somebody with a pitch that's up and in. You know They'll do whatever they do to defend themselves and they did real well. They had great people in the union office who were very skilled and got some, some benefits that, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're really uh, unprecedented, you know, what they got. Yeah, I mean, like what, like I don't really know much about like the, the CBA post post the, the strike, like after the strike, like what, like you talk about some like the great benefits, like what were some of those like, do you, could you give me like an example of one of the major benefits that like was never well, even? Uh, actually, what used to happen was that there were uh, a number of different negotiations over different aspects. There was 
one with regard to uh, pensions and health care and benefits and that type of thing. Then you had the CBA with the, uh, there was, you, you have to call them work rule things that they, uh, that were negotiated, but they were always in different packages until uh, later on. And then as some of them came around, they would be rolled into one sort of master negotiation uh, for all of them at one time. And it took a number of years to get it to that point. Yeah. So um, then after the strike, um, I know that you retired before I was born. So then like you were there kind of to see the, the beginning of one of the most exciting like points in recent baseball history, but now is kind of looked at very differently. Like the, like the, um, the McGuire Sosa, uh, like that yeah. happened when you were there, like the, um, like what was it like, like watching that, like from like, it was like watching that whole thing like play out and could you tell that there was something going on? Um, in some ways, yes. Some ways, no, I think, um, this thing just didn't start there. This started way back. I remember, uh, that there were, I guess back in the early 60s, say, uh, there was uh, greenies and stuff, uppers and downers that they, that were around that people used. Uh, then after that, it started to get into more sophisticated type of things uh, that you saw out there now with uh, testosterone and all the other things that, uh, that have come about. There was in the 80s, uh, you had some there. I know Peter, you wrote, dealt with a number of them. There was a few players out in Pittsburgh that he had to deal with, uh, as far as what was doing there. And, uh, it, it sort of has always been around. And I, I the, the competitive part of the players, some of them are always going to take any edge that they can. So, uh, it may not be the healthy thing or the right thing to do. But, uh, you know, if they think that they're going to have a, an edge or it's going to keep them around a little longer, or maybe it's going to create a, a bigger salary for them. Uh, I don't doubt that they took them just to, for those reasons. Okay, I mean, um, and what like was kind of related to the, like this in a little bit, but do you think guys like, um, I think like for me, at least um, for guys that like, did um like that were major like that had major roles in like the steroid era kind of with like the the like use of the PEDs like I feel like for me there's some guys that I do think like I would still put in the hall of fame and others like I wouldn't necessarily like I I like I personally think that like I would put in like Bonds and Clemens like like one of the reasons being like they were great players like before this happened like Bonds was still the best player in baseball before that before the uh before he started before he like got into that world and like even even A-Rod I would consider but like I'm just wondering if like like what your thoughts are on and if you think like they should be allowed in and potentially this is kind of off topic, but kind of on topic, like with the whole Houston situation happening this year where you had, like, would you consider like maybe those guys like not being 
in the Hall of Fame as well if you don't believe like people that uh, were involved in the steroid or taking taking uh, the PEDs should be in or whatnot. Yeah, I, you know, um, part of what I had to do was try and be fair with everybody with uh, the 30 clubs, make sure the rules were followed by all 30 of them. One didn't get up on the other guy uh, for some particular reason. And I think that, um, I don't think it's fair to the guy who goes out there and works plugs, shows what he's got and puts it out there on the field and leaves it out there for everybody to see. I don't think it's fair for him to play that hard and do what he can do and then somebody else gets a pass. And you, you talk about certain people, maybe their careers are extended at levels that they could never achieve when, uh, if they didn't have the, what they took as a supplement. Uh, I don't think it's fair to a lot of players. And uh, I don't think it's good uh, for kids or for other people just to, see somebody take this stuff and get juiced up and then overperform, so to speak, against their uh, normal capabilities. Uh, if I was, I, I'm not a baseball writer and I don't have a, a choice as who goes in and who doesn't, but if I was, I think I would uh, try and remember the rest of the guys that never get into the Hall of Fame and think about, you know, is it fair to them if they, uh, the guys that go out there and they're on the, 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 the list for, you know, 15, 20 years and then fall off the list because they don't have enough support. Like you saw uh, this year, this year, uh, on his last year of the ballot, Larry Walker finally got in. Like, yeah. yeah. Like, and a lot of people say, oh, like, Coors Fielder, like, he's one of the guys that, like, had one, like, a very underrated, like, very great career in people just like don't even remember him because of guys like like Bonds and Maguire and Sosa at that time just like hitting like ridiculous amounts of home runs everything. I'm just using uh using Larry Walker as an example and like Edgar Martinez and other guy like guys that were great players that, that get in on like the last years of their ballots or whatever because people kind of just forget about they don't forget yeah. about them but they're not like the guys who are remembered for that time. And so I do understand that point. But also um you worked in the like in the the rule like working like with the the rules and stuff for MLB, correct? Right? Yes. So, if the the whole Houston situation that was exposed this year happened, like when you were still working there, you'd be like one of the main people involved in like in investigate. Would you be like involved in that investigation potentially? Well, it's hard to say. Charlie's nearly twenty years since I work. Yeah. But, uh, I would say that. Uh, uh, something like that, uh, unfortunately, I think is was uh, preventable. Mm -hmm. um, there, there is enough uh, people that are hired to work at these ballparks, uh, security people. Uh, it could be sweeps made. It could be very simple. It's either uh, there's a simple yes or no on this one too. Mm -hmm. Yes, you can use this stuff anytime you want to use them. And no, you can't. And no, you can't. So if you say no, you can't, and it's prohibited in, say, uh, clubhouses, dugouts, whatever it is there, and you prohibit communications, uh, that's 
that's one way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. Like one of the things that I like think is in terms of like sign stealing, if you're picking something up off second base or they're like tipping pitches or something, that's, that's gamesmanship. Like, yeah, that is. Yeah. At, but when you bring in like using a camera, like putting in the camera and then like, like you have the camera set up, somebody in the dugout and then having a specific like form of communication. Yeah. You got a signal with the, system. with the batter to like, and it's auditory. So you can't see somebody like changing it. Right. Like you actually, you actually have to be looking to hear, to hear that. And people in baseball, like a bunch of players and everything, like they have said, like they knew something was up during that. Yeah. Um, and then like it took one of the players from that team to like actually come out and say like, this is what they're doing. So, I mean, like they, 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 and they always, and they talked like they weren't doing anything wrong. Anything. So like that whole situation, like I just say, and I just kind of wanted to bring up because you did work in, in the rules, but uh, let's get like going back on to um, back on topic. Um, At the end, like what was like the, the end of your career looking like in terms of baseball? Like how did, like what made you decide uh, to like retire when you did and why not? Um, well, um, I think the game and the personnel and everything has changed quite a bit. It's saying the commissioner's office. Um, when I first started there, uh, if you counted all the people up in the commissioner's office, uh, there was maybe 30. That was it. That was the receptionists, the secretaries, uh, whoever, you know, whoever was in there. Uh, there were no, uh, uh, there was no computer systems in there at that particular point. When I started in 1980, uh, in fact, I was able to, uh, when you wrote was there, I was able to get IBM to come in and uh, donate some equipment the clubs and we started our own scoring system and got that thing up and going with all the stats coming back into MLB, which has now blossomed into a big, big, big business now uh, with all the stats and the analysis that's going on. And all the analytics and everything. Yeah. So that started, uh, that was 30 years ago, you know, so there was, there was, you go from nothing down to these high speed computers and clubs having a couple of dozen people working on analytics, whatever it is. Uh, it, it's, it was a whole different uh, area there. Uh, and it became very uh, driven uh, by the different markets, whether it was uh, television and cable uh, or the uh, print type thing with the, uh, with the stats, that type of thing. Uh, so I just, uh, you know, mm -hmm. time to go. Yeah. Um, and one of the, like, one, like a few stories that you, that I love, like that you told me were some of these like hall of fame dinners during like induction ceremonies. Like, oh yeah. Yeah. Every, yeah. That was the best weekend of the year. Um, was the uh, induction ceremonies up at Cooperstown. And uh, on Sunday night after the ceremonies were over, they would have a dinner for, uh, all of the, the, uh, the members of the Hall of Fame that were there that came back that year. And they would award 
the Hall of Fame rings to the new members that were inducted. And um, there were a couple of people from outside, like myself, uh, who were invited to the, those dinners there. It was maybe three, four, five or something like that might be invited in. Uh, and um, to see some of these people that were there, I mean, uh, some of them were like bigger than life. I mean, particularly like a guy like uh, Ted Williams. Uh, no matter when he entered the room, he was the center. He, uh, he was there, everybody knew it was him. Um, and he, uh, uh, I remember one year he came in and I was sitting across the, the table from this old gentleman and I didn't really recognize him because I, I hadn't even seen him play. His name was Burley Grimes who was, uh, and Burley was uh, uh, the last of the spitball pitchers. And uh, William saw him and he came over and he sat right next to me. Hey, what do you say, kid? So he starts talking with Burley. He steps right in and he starts talking with Burley. And Burley was sort of an old retired gentleman with a pipe in his hand. He's puffing away on the pipe now and then, take a drag. And then, you know. So Williams was anxious to talk to him about how often he threw spitters. And they were going back and forth. And then finally, Burley says, I'd have to throw it too often because everybody was thinking I was doing it all the time. So he just puffed on his pipe again and Williams looked a little bit frustrated, but that's the way it was. You know, you saw characters like that all the time. Some terrific, terrific people over there. Yeah. I mean, one of the things like, I feel like what uh, Ted Williams would be one of the people that could like just tell you like that, like whether or not that guy was actually, actually lying or not, because like, he has very famously known, like, he had, like, one of the best, like, he had one of the best, like, eyesights anybody has, like, ever had. Oh, yeah, yeah. So well, they say he used to be able to, if you brought in a dozen new bats, he could grip them and twist them a little bit and put them down and then throw the next one and this one. He knew where the balance points were in the bats and which ones he would want. And he might get a dozen bats, but keep two. And the others he'd give to somebody else to, to hit with if they wanted them or give them to the, you know, to the clubby to move them around. But uh, he had that type of thing there. And he had a great, great intensity. Uh, when he was talking about hitting, I mean, this was like, uh, uh, you know, he was just uh, outstanding. I remember seeing him one time where he was talking with uh, Ralph Kiner, who was a pretty good home run hitter. And he and Ralph were standing around and he had a bat in his hand and he was just sort of squeezing and rolling it and squeezing it and rolling it. I thought he was going to wear it up in sawdust, you know, I mean, he was just a, he just loved to have the, a bat in his hand ready to go. You know, he was a, really an interesting type guy. Yeah. So like talking, like you said, interesting, like that he was an interesting person. What are like some other like, of the most interesting or like most like intriguing people that you've ever met in baseball uh, during your time with either with the Mets or uh, in the commissioner's office or even both. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, rather than just talk about individuals like that, I, I, I really um, think some of the most important people and the most intriguing people that you're going to meet are uh, baseball scouts. Great, great people. And uh, 
they do a, a tough job. They're out, uh, you know, circulating, looking for ball players, trying to evaluate them. Maybe you have to come back and double check them, compare one to another one if they like that type of thing. But they have uh, a keen insight, you know. And I, I if uh, I was in a ballpark and there were scouts around, I, I'd try and sit next to the scouts up in the press box and just listen to what they're saying and what's going on, you know. Uh, I think that they uh, uh, they have so much and um, some of the stuff is sort of just a, like a gut knowledge that you have after you've seen somebody and you think that you know what he can do and he can't do. And I think that uh, a lot of people, uh, not too many of them left now, I guess, probably because of the changeovers and age and what have you and all this analytics and the other stuff coming in. But I think that uh, uh, a lot of people uh, had that gut feeling for certain types of players and what they could and they couldn't do. You know, they felt that maybe they had talents, but maybe didn't have it, as they say, behind the belt, uh, the belt buckle. You know what I mean? They didn't have the guts for it to really extend themselves and go all out, you know, as to whether they're going to be fully committed. So they had those types of gut feelings and they could, uh, articulate him, you know, that he's, he's, he's really good and he can go full time. But I think they were, they were great people. The umpires are spectacular guys. They're uh, a great group of people there. It's a tough business too. If you're out on your own, you know, you got four guys out there running around the country, going from city to city every three, four days. Uh, yeah. they, they're same type of people. They're down to earth people. They, they're really the, the salt of the earth, those types of people that are there. People are in the minor leagues, uh, managing, instructors, whatever, you know, they're down there. They they put that work in. They never get recognition, you know, uh, for all the time and effort that they have or what they've done for players moving them up the ladder. Yeah, and uh, this is my final uh, question for um, this interview. Um, so, you did work, obviously, we've been talking about how you worked in the commissioner's office for a while. And right now, the current commissioner is um, is Rob Manfred, and he's been under heat with the whole Houston situation, has been in, heat, in, in like, controversy before, like, even before he was the commissioner with the whole uh, uh, A-Rod investigation and everything. But I, I just was curious to see, like, what, like, did you, like, work with him any time before um, you talked? Oh, yeah, yeah. The... Uh, the um... Labor Department was is a big, big. Uh, uh, they've got a lot of uh, work that they do. Uh, a lot of it has impact on both baseball and non-baseball uh, type of things. There, uh, Rob has been involved. Gosh, I guess probably early '80s, maybe. He was uh, a young partner. At, uh, at the law firm that was doing the labor negotiations there. Uh, and uh, he did it for years and years and years. I mean, it was almost like at that point in time, he was almost like working for MLB. I mean, he was there so long and so often and uh, was developing strategies. It was uh, trying to figure out what's what, that's how you're going to answer certain charges that might be there and other things, you know. Uh, it's a tough job uh, on that part, just in the labor part that he was involved in to, 
but you got to have some sort of background there and expertise in order to be able to uh, to pull it off. And I think that uh, over the course of time, uh, as you had said, that uh, uh, the commissioners now are more a part of the uh, negotiating process than just the labor department. I mean, they have to be able to step up and, and uh, have some input in that. And he has. It's, it's not an easy job by any means, as you can see from some of the things that you, you know, that you had talked about there. He, uh, the, the equity part on uh, the Houston thing is, is, is huge, you know. That how do you have that balance where you tell somebody, hey, here it is, here's the punishment you get for this without sort of having too much too little. Uh, how does it affect the players? You know, he can, if he goes and he goes, uh, he's got to consider that too as he goes along. To see how you got you, you to be Solomon, you know what I mean? You got to be able to know what to do. Yeah, like going into the Houston thing again, like I was thinking, like just now, like even though I'm one of the people that says like, oh, I feel like because it was mostly ran by the players who came out that I felt like the players should get like a month, like the players should get suspensions and whatnot and get a harsher punishment but then again like not think about it like you would have to deal with the players union and everything because oh yeah no doubt and the mln um for people that might not know it's the mlb players union is like by far the strongest of the players unions like in maybe maybe the nba has like gotten a strong like the nba players association has like gotten a little stronger in recent years but Mm -hmm. um the MLB Players Union is not a group that you want to mess around with. No, that's uh, the MLB Players Union is very powerful in baseball negotiations. Yeah, I, I in a way, you know, you're talking about the uh, the strike and um, things got hardened, I guess, on both sides on that. But um, at some point in time, the two groups had to realize that they needed the other. One needed the other. Somebody's going to have to open the gates. Somebody's going to have to pay the players, you know, as it goes along there. And, um, yeah, I think it came down to that. Uh, I think the competition and the warrior-type side of the negotiations uh, had to moderate, and I think more common sense had to come into this so that uh, people could find uh, and also respect uh, the other side. Yeah. Like, I think that, like, I mean, obviously like that, that like a mindset needed to change because everybody, like nobody wanted the strike to happen. No, no. And nobody like in other sports, usually it's lockouts where it's the owners facilitating. And this one, it was the players, which is kind of interesting because it it would have been called the the lockout if it was the, the owners that started it. But yeah. So like you like I don't I just find it interesting. Then they become like like a working unit. But then again, still like that's something that Manfred has to take into account when looking at punishment of any players is how how the players union is going to. Yeah. So. Yeah, that that's always a problem. You know, when you talk about people who you know pitchers going head hunting, 
uh, pitches make up half of the, of the roster, you know, and the players are the other half. So one guy says, Hey, he's thrown at my head, you know, and he's, I'm trying to defend myself, you know? So it's, it's a push back and forth. And, uh, you know, you end up in situations you've had some in the past where some guy puts one up close to somebody's chin and he ends up playing with that guy next year on trades. So there's like a ton of roster turnaround. Yeah, you know, so you get these changes and these guys know that they have to live with each other. Mm-hmm. All right, I think I think that uh, covers everything. Thank you so much for uh, coming on. and Happy to do it, Charlie. Good luck with your project. Hope it all goes well. All right, thank, thank you for... Thank you. All right. Just a week up. Here, Ryan. Yeah, watch me rip this shit. Changed my words. I remember that. Chelsea just went off the deep end, bro. Fuck, fuck, uh, uh. Are we still recording? Yeah. Let's go.